With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, with USA-Mexico on Friday, I sit down in Columbus, Ohio with Mexico coach Juan Carlos Osorio, who explains how he recovered from Mexico's 7-0 loss to Chile last summer by traveling to see legendary coach Marcelo Bielsa in South America. He allowed me to go and visit him. There were like five fantastic days with sessions in the morning and in the afternoon, walking sessions, talking sessions, just walk and talk and discuss and confront many aspects of the game. All that and more coming up. Welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. I'm in Columbus, Ohio today ahead of Friday's World Cup qualifier between the United States and Mexico. Our guest today is the coach of the Mexican men's national team, Juan Carlos Osorio, who has had a fascinating career. A native of Colombia, Osorio went to college in the U.S., graduating from Southern Connecticut State University, and lived in the U.S. for 20 years. He became the conditioning coach at Manchester City in 2001, and since then has been the head coach at several clubs, including Chicago Fire, New York Red Bulls, Once Caldas, Atletico Nacional, and Sao Paulo. Thanks for joining me today, Juan Carlos. Thanks a lot for the uh, invitation. It's great to have you here. Uh, I want to start because obviously it's a big soccer week with USA-Mexico on Friday here in Columbus. We're speaking on Wednesday morning, and I feel like I should ask you about the news that's bigger than sports today. Uh, Donald Trump has just won the U.S. presidency, which has a huge influence on the U.S. and Mexico as countries. Overnight, the Mexican peso suffered its biggest fall in 22 years. Trump has said lots of things, threatened to deport millions of undocumented Mexican migrants, many of whom he's called rapists and drug runners. He wants to build a wall that will keep out other Mexicans. We are in Ohio, which Trump won by a large margin. That's the larger context surrounding this sporting event between the U.S. and Mexico. How does this news influence this event, in your opinion? Well, certainly... As human beings, I think that uh, all the Mexicans probably have their own feelings about, and I do have mine. But I think we all have to uh, put this aside for now and just concentrate on the game. It's our responsibility to represent Mexico and the entire population of Mexicans as best as we can. And we are certainly putting all our efforts to win the game and give that uh, moment of happiness to all our Mexicans. Mexico has played the U.S. in Columbus four times, losing all four games. But this is a new opportunity for your team why do you think the result 
could be different this time. We have put everything aside and we just have concentrated on the games that had been played in in Columbus. We have analyzed all the goals, how they were um, conceded from our part. In We also have analyzed the games, the starting lines, the systems, and at the end we we came out with conclusions that we think are vital for this coming game and we have trained them and we have tried to get ways to control that and to try to play our game and impose our talented players uh, versus their athleticism. We respect them very well. We think they are a very, very good team, very well coached with great players, but we also believe and we think that the Mexicans players are very well recognized now. In Europe, we have enough 13 players playing in good teams, being influential in their own teams. And also we have Joani that plays in the MLS. So I think in general, we can compete against them, try to win this game. You were telling me before we started recording that part of your preparations for this game have involved some mental conditioning work, and you even mentioned some video work on the mental side, using some video going back as far as the 1974 Dutch national team. Could you tell me more about it? Well, nowadays, um, I think that we all recognize and we all admire, and some of us, we go farther to uh, prefer the type of game played by Barcelona. And in the last decade or so has been the, uh, the most influential club team in the world. Mm-hmm. But well, a lot of people tend to forget that it all originated in, in Holland. Mm-hmm. So we, we go back as as back as, or as far back as 1974, 1978, mm-hmm. when in the 1974, the team was coached by Rinos Mitchell. Mm-hmm. And they start playing what has become the type of football that, as I say, that we all admire. So back then, they have Johan Croy playing as a false striker, something that now, about two or three weeks ago, uh, Manchester City tried to with uh, the Bruin mm-hmm. against Barcelona in Barcelona. Yeah. And um, like I say, that goes back to, to those days. And when you analyze those games, then you can see how it, it all started, how it all begins. Because having so many talented players like we do now, how they fought for the ball and not for the space, mm-hmm. which are very two very different concepts in football. Mm-hmm. You can defend just outside the box and defend the space, but you can defend with holding the, the defensive line at the halfway line, mm-hmm. but defending the ball mm-hmm. because you know every ball over the top onto 30 meters or 40 meters or 50 meters of space is, is too dangerous. 
But if you defend for the the ball and you go after the ball, like the Dutch national team showed the world in 1974, then we can always sort of like acknowledge where all leaders started and use it as an example that it can be done with such talented players. Okay. I like the fact that you're going old school, but with a modern impact on the game. I mean, this seems like, in your mind, 1974 Holland, the way they pressed, the way they played, is something that still applies today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we can all have different opinions about the way the game is played. Mm -hmm. It was played, and it will be played. But there are certain things that, that, that hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. 11 players start on the pitch. Uh, we play for two periods of 45 minutes. Um, there are rules that have no change, you know. Mm-hmm. And we always, or in our opinion, always have to go back to the main principle, and is that the idea of playing is certainly something that every coach will identify with Mm -hmm. but to execute that idea of playing the most important part are the players yeah and the players will back then today and in the future give the possibilities of playing in a specific way Mm -hmm. and the way we want to play i think we require those type of efforts mm-hmm. from our part. If we're going to play very talented players, mm-hmm. if we're going to defend in a different way, obviously we will have to watch other teams, mm-hmm. but we prefer to watch the Ajax and the Dutch and the, the teams that play that way. In terms of mental conditioning, I'm sure you're aware of this, that over the years, the Mexican national team has often been thought of as very talented, but sometimes on the mental side, lacking. What are you doing in terms of mental conditioning work with this team right now, and what kind of response is that getting in Mexico? I think that um, the biggest thing is to acknowledge that. If we don't do anything about the mental side, then obviously we are ignoring a big fact in not only in soccer, but in any sport. Mm -hmm. And we have great examples in basketball, in tennis players, in golfers. Mm -hmm. And I have to, in parentheses, clarify that I don't like any other sport but soccer and basketball. Okay. But uh, reading about the other top athletes in other sports and even Olympians, Mm And there is no secret that the United States has always had great Olympians in any Olympic Games. Yeah. And the time that I went to university here, I learned that you have to have beat your opponent in any other aspect, whether it's nutrition, whether it's strengthening, and whether it's the mental side. Right. So you need help in any of those three fields. But there are certain animosity towards the mental side huh in in some parts it's almost assuming that you are weak when you think that you need help in the mental aspect okay 
whether it's in the, in the nutrition aspect or in other aspects, it doesn't anything to lose. Mm -hmm. So if you acknowledge that, then you move forward. Mm -hmm. And the way we move forward is trying to get some help. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily a, a psychiatric help. It's just uh, guys that or people that have gone through the same emotions, mm -hmm. through the same situations, and how to manage them. Yeah, And we believe that there are people that can help and we are reinforcing that aspect of the game interesting and how to compete against teams that are athletically better prepared okay or playing in a in a stadium like we're going to do in two days mm -hmm. on friday against 25 or thirty thousand people and just to with character with discipline with personality to play to have the cur the, the mental courage to play at our level mm -hmm. at our potential and compete and and see what happened in the game okay interesting in august you and i happened to be staying at the same hotel in brasilia during the olympics and i came over and said hello at breakfast and you were kind enough to invite me to sit down and we ended up talking for 90 minutes one thing you talked about was a trip that you had taken to a, I think it was a small town in southern Brazil this summer after the 7-0 loss to Chile to see the very respected coach Marcelo Bielsa. Could you tell me about the trip and where this was exactly and, and what you did with Bielsa? Well, I have to say that, um, first of all, I look for, for somebody that has had a similar type of defeat okay and if we remember in 2002 2004 for the qualifying of the world cup in uh, japan and korea yeah japan and korea uh, marcelo bielsa was a coach in argentina yeah and he qualified without no problems at all it was a record, 45 points mm -hmm. against 12 points of the last team, which at that point happened to be Chile. And 12 years later, this Chile is has become one of the top teams in South America. Yeah. To Copa Americas and a lot of their players playing in Europe. And it all started with... Mr. Bielsa. Mm -hmm. So, again, the first thing is to acknowledge who has done and who has been in that position. Yeah. And I think he's a top, top manager. So, the second part was to ask him, and he allowed me to go and visit him. Mm -hmm. And he w there were like five fantastic days with sessions in the morning and in the afternoon walking sessions, talking sessions, just walk and talk mm -hmm. and discuss and confront many aspects of the game. And I think that it was an outstanding experience for me, mm -hmm. not only to corroborate principles, ideas of the game, of the way we should play, also to learn more things from him 
but at the end of the day the most important thing was a great help to get to terms with that defeat mm-hmm. that particular defeat and basically recreate the lost uh, trying to understand that lost and when you understand the main factors why in in football terms we lost the way we did then you learned about the experience mm-hmm. and after that is just a period of digest digest mm-hmm. that and and learn from it and grow from it yeah so it was recreate understand learn digest and move forward okay marcelo bielsa is a kind of legendary figure among people who follow this sport closely coaches media fans it's almost like he's larger than life in some ways for those of us who follow the sport closely what was he like when you spent those five days with him what did you talk about Uh, with marcelo you have the chance to speak about everything because he's a very intelligent well-read well educated man okay and on top of that obviously as a trainer is one of the top trainers on the field i mean yeah. on the pitch as an strategy he is very offensive minded mm-hmm. so and for those who identify and admire that type of training is fantastic is a fantastic man uh, as far as tactical he can speak about the game like nobody else. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's a great, great human being, and he's a fantastic, amazing football man. Tactically, you are known for variation, taking different approaches, tinkering, really thinking about the sport. So is Bielsa, so is Guardiola. When they make changes, they don't seem to have as much criticism applied to them <laughs> as when you make changes with your team. Why is this? Simply because they are Mr. Bielsa, Mr. Guardiola, and I am simply Juan Osorio. Uh, but I, one thing I, w- I got to tell you is uh, I follow them very closely. Yeah. For instance, is it was fascinating. It was a complete learning uh, experience for those, including myself, who who follow the last month of Manchester City. Mm-hmm. They went and Guardiola went from playing in New Camp or in Camp Nou for two. Mm-hmm. With a, with no striker, no Aguero, yeah, and instead Silva at the Bruin, and from there move three days later against Southampton in mm-hmm. the Premiership to play back three, diamond figure, and three forwards. Yep, and a center forward named Aguero, mm-hmm. and a centre-back named company as a captain, two players that were highly, heavily questioned Mm -hmm. because he didn't include neither of them two, three days before 
against Barcelona. Mm -hmm. Against Barcelona, 0-4. No, 4-0 against. Right. Southampton, 1-1. Then he went to play Manchester United for the cup, right? Yeah. And then he changed and played 4-3-3 with three young players, mm -hmm. right? And then four day, three days later, he went and played West Bromwich and played with Fernando as a fullback mm -hmm. in a back four. And then three days later, he <laughs> went and played Barcelona, and now he played back 4-3-3, but with Aguero included, and he put a fullback that goes most into attack, like Salaveta. Mm -hmm. So in five matches, he went from different systems with different players depending on the needs, depending on the characteristics of the other team, right. depending if he's playing at home or away, depending on who is healthy or who's not, who is fit and who's not. So I just feel that when you have a team, all these factors should be considered right. before selecting the 11 unless you have a team that completely dominates the competition and that's not the case it's impossible he did it with barcelona i'm talking about mr guardiola mm -hmm. but he is not longer doing it with manchester city so he has to variety he has to look for other options because he cannot win all the games playing with the same players and with the same style right that's managing that's being a top strategy that he is that's being tactically aware of the many structures that you can use to win the game and the factor or the thing that impressed me the most is that to me that shows humility mm -hmm. because you are acknowledging the rival, the opposition. You are respecting them and you're trying to put the best team on the field. And the best team, that doesn't mean the best, the best 11 players. I'm talking about the best team and most people or a lot of people don't understand that. Yeah. And that's a different concept. So a lot of, in, a, in many countries, in South America and in many other countries, in Mexico, they prefer a starting 11 that can play different structures. Mm -hmm. Whereas we identify, we don't say that we are better or worse, we're just different. Mm -hmm. We identify with the same idea of playing, but with different players, mm -hmm. depending on all the previous factors. Okay. I know you watch a lot of games. And I was reading recently that you don't pay a lot of attention to the media coverage in Mexico. When you're watching games these days, you're talking about watching Manchester City very closely. What are some of the most interesting trends in modern soccer right now, tactically, that you're seeing in terms of some of the approaches that top managers are taking? Rant, I really think that the the beauty of this wonderful sport is the variation, mm -hmm. the different ideas of approaching the game. Mm -hmm. Because now, for instance, we have leading the, the premiership club, mm -hmm. and it's all about 
dynamic play, pressuring high. Sometimes it's, it looks like there is no defined structure on the on the field. Mm -hmm. And the more I study the game, the more I realize that during the game itself, you could see a team that plays with four in the back, two central midfielders, one nine and a half or playmaker, one forward and two wide players, mm -hmm. you can go from looking at the same team in a different structure. It could be four, two, three, one. It could be four, four, one, one. It could be four, three, three with two, one structure in the middle. It depends if the team is defending. It depends if the team is attacking. It depends where the, the ball is. Mm -hmm. It depends at, at the height of the white players. Are they in line with the two central midfielders? So it's a 4-4. Four, four. Or are they in line with the main striker? So it's a 4-3-3. Three, three. Mm -hmm. That all changes during the game. And I think that that's the, for me, is the, the best thing. Because then you have to have a flexibility during the during the game. And now, for instance, another big change that we can see at, at Chelsea with Conte is mm -hmm. three in the back, mm -hmm. two white players, and that's a structure that you can call three. If you add two midfielders, it could be three, four, or five, two, mm -hmm. right? Depend how you read the white players and they are playing at what level? At the level of the three defenders, so it's a five. If they are playing at the level of the two central midfielders, it's a four. But the main point to me is that in a country like England, well known for a 4-4-2 or 4-2-4, right. the famous Manchester United or Mr. Ferguson, it was bad red. A lot of people would say 4-4-2, but if you have a Giggs on the left side and Beckham on the right side, is more attacking players, so it wasn't really a 4-2-4. Four two four, mm -hmm. where two midfielders, Keane and Paul Scholes, and two attackers, Dwight York and, and Andy, Andy Cole. Cole, or Cantona and another, or Wayne Rooney and another player, yeah. like that. But in, in England, in a country well known for a 4 4 2 or 4 2 4, and now Conte plays with three or five in the back, that's amazing, and he's doing very well. Mm -hmm. So that's the beauty of the game. But the one thing for me is to reiterate that the possibilities of any given team depends directly in the characteristics of the players, yeah. more so than in the coach. Mm -hmm. Even when the coach have the luxury at the club level to buy the players, mm -hmm. but he cannot buy 20 players, he might be able to buy 10 or five and then have to adjust with the other players. Mm -hmm. So the idea of the manager has to be directly in relation with A, the players, and the structure that, that he can use to get the most out of those players. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, you spent 20 years in the United States. What sort of influence did that have on the way you view this sport after growing up in South America? A great influence because I remember when I first came to the United States, I was playing professionally in Colombia. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of Argentinians and a lot of Brazilians. Mm -hmm. And being Latin ourselves, we were more so into 
diving, faking, making, cheating the referee, trying to make him hmm. make calls. And it's, it's, it's the nature of, of ourselves. We, we think that uh, the best way to compete, especially against very athletic teams, is trying to get the benefit of the acting. Hmm. And in early, my early days in college, I learned that there was no way to compete against the athleticism of the Europeans, of the Americans, or the Scandinavians, or the big, strong Africans, if we were not well prepared. Mm -hmm. So I start training on, on the gym, mm -hmm. I start eating better, and obviously competing a lot better. Hmm. And I learned, that was the first thing that I learned, we have to compete, we have to have a team that is capable of competing at the highest level mm -hmm. in a very honorable way. Mm -hmm. within the rules, respecting the rival. Everybody has the right to be on the field, mm -hmm. and you have to match that up. You have to uh, level any expectation of the rival. And after that, then you impose your, your talent. Okay. And you did spend some time with Sir Alex Ferguson when you were over at Man City, observing him, speaking to him. What did you take out of that? He reinforced that. Uh-huh. Because and that was a, a fantastic experience for me because I came to the United States and I thought, well, that's that's the way it is in any sport. But then I went to England and I say that's the way it has to be in in football, in soccer, mm -hmm. in our football, in soccer. Because when I went to Manchester City, we were playing in the Championship. Mm -hmm. We were not in the Premiership. And in the championship, and I asked Mr. Ferguson if I could go mm -hmm. and watch the training sessions. And I remember standing on the rain many times, waiting and hoping that he would come down on his nice, well suit. Yeah, the I tailored mean, suit. He was always well taken <laughs> care of, man, well dressed. He didn't do the training, but he would come down mm -hmm. in a long coat with an umbrella and watch a little bit, say a couple things, but you could feel the, his authority. You could feel that he was the man in charge. Mm -hmm. And the, the, amongst the many things that I learned was, A, you have to delegate. Okay. He didn't do the training, but he has very good trainers on the field. B, you have to be straightforward. Mm -hmm. If you're leading a group of men, you cannot lie. You cannot cheat you have to be clear honest objective with men and the most important thing for me that i learned from him was to give everybody to give every player the opportunity to compete mm -hmm. to play and to contribute mm -hmm. to the benefit of the group okay something if I'm not mistaken, it's called rotation. <laughs> Which you have maybe been criticized in Mexico a little bit for. <laughs> not comments. <laughs> I think, speaking seriously about yeah. that, I think that in any walk of life, any, if you are part of the group, yeah. if there is an, one collective 
objective, you want to be part of that. Mm -hmm. And the best way to be part of that is to contribute. Mm -hmm. Whether it is a small contribution or medium contribution or big contribution, we are all contributing to one main objective. Mm -hmm. And my small contribution at certain point could be more important than your biggest contribution. And that's the principle behind rotation. Mm -hmm. It's about opportunity. It's about con trust the other person, yeah. trusting everybody, Yeah. right? And J.C. Maxwell, in one of, one of his many great books, he mentioned a Scottish poet, George MacDonald. Mm -hmm. And he said that the best accolade mm -hmm. that you can get as a, as a man is that other men trust you. Okay. And I think that the best way to, to show my players that I trust them is by giving them the opportunity to play mm -hmm. and to play at the highest level. Okay. And I learned that from Ferguson. And I think if there is anybody to learn from is that big big man football man yeah we'll wrap up here in a second but i wanted to ask you about your hopes your objectives with this mexican national team which has always been good if you look at the world cup six straight world cups now where mexico has reached the round of 16 but not advanced beyond that round yeah. how do you take this mexico team to the next level I think we need to take steps. A, to have a good world qualification yeah. matches in, and hopefully qualify in a healthy manner, meaning not waiting to the last game. Mm -hmm. Then it will take the team to what they call the next game, the fifth game. And the fifth game is always against any South American country or any top European country mm -hmm. or why not against an African country. Mm -hmm. And I think that in that process, by these players playing top games with heavy, heavy weight on those games, meaning prestige, money, future contracts, the players will grow through that process. Mm -hmm. And hopefully when we go to the World Cup, then we can play in an environment that is not longer a weird environment, an antagonistic environment, but it's something that we will be accustomed to, mm -hmm. which is what happened with basketball players and, and tennis players. And that's one of my particular uh, way of thinking that's why the americans are so good at in sports because if you go for instance in basketball at any high school kids 16 17 year old boys or girls playing in front of 5000 people 10000 people or more in south america we don't have that mm -hmm. my little boy 13 year old boy he played at the beginning of this year in the best football tournament that is in Colombia mm -hmm. and he plays twice against 3,000 people, 5,000 people mm -hmm. 
but the rest of the year he never plays against 500 people. Hmm. And that certainly brings the pressure down. Mm -hmm. So when you grow up playing in front of 5, 10, 50,000 people, the pressure that you might feel in farther down in your life mm -hmm. when you start playing at 19 or 20 year, that's a pressure that not longer exists. Yeah. Or if it is there, you know how to manage that. You, have, you know how to control that. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't have that. And that brings me to the next point. That's why I was talking about in, in a previous interview about the importance of the football grounds being football grounds like they are in England. Yeah. And United States have so many in the MLS and Mexico has so many now that is unbelievable the stadiums there. The 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 Omni Light, the Monterrey, the Tigres, the the all the clubs, even uh, Querétaro has a small beautiful mm. stadium with thirty thousand people, but they are so close I feel like fifty. That's uh. what we need in South America to for the sport to grow even more and to produce better players that can handle that pressure. And I think Mexico, Mexican players will benefit in the same way. That's why it's so important that our 13 players in Europe keep playing and playing big matches mm -hmm. with big responsibilities and they grow through that responsibility. Juan Carlos Osorio, thank you for speaking to the podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Juan Carlos Osorio and everyone at Digital Media and Sports Illustrated who support this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, there are other great new and archived episodes you can check out, including my recent interviews on the Dos Acero history, as well as Bob Bradley, Gary Lineker, David Villa, and Tomas Mueller. You can subscribe to, like, and review the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.